Well, you wonder why I always dress in black Why you never see bright colors on my back And why does my appearance seem to have a somber tone Well, there's a reason for the things that Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And this week, I'm examining King's collection of short stories, The Twisted and Terrifying, Everything's Eventual. As you know from previous episodes, King has published a book of short stories every decade, starting with 1978's Night Shift, 1985's Skeleton Crew, 1993's Nightmare and Dreamscapes, and here he continues his tradition with Everything's Eventual. As a disclaimer, I want to note that Everything's Eventual came out during a low point of my Stephen King fandom. I had been disappointed with From a Buick 8 and Dreamcatcher, and the heydays of my Stephen King enthusiasm had long since waned. So I don't have many memories of reading Everything's Eventual. I didn't have the anticipation I had felt uh, almost a decade before with the release of his previous short story collection, Nightmares and Dreamscapes. And I wanted this publication to get out of the way so we could get to the last three books of The Dark Tower. I wanted conclusion. I didn't want these stinking short stories. I say this because I wasn't in the right mind to enjoy what King had given. So I was very excited to return to Everything's Eventual to see what I had missed the first time around. As I have done with my reviews of his other stories, I'm not going to review every short story in this collection, but a handful of the best. So I'll be reviewing Autopsy Room 4, The Man in the Black Suit, The Road Virus Heads North, Lunch at the Gotham Cafe, 1408. Now, there are two short stories that are not on this list, and those stories are The Little Sisters of Illuria and Everything's Eventual. Why aren't they on this list? Well, they're not on this list because they are related to the Dark Tower. So you might be asking, you're a huge Dark Tower fan. Why aren't you reviewing them? Don't worry, everyone. I am reviewing them, just not in this episode. I'm releasing a separate episode published at the same time as this one where I can review those two short stories and place them into the greater context of the Dark Tower saga, whose ending we are going to journey down together beginning next week. But before I get into the reviews, I'm going to write, uh, read an email sent in from Brett, who writes, Hello, sir. I know I'm about a year late, but I just finished your podcast on the Carrie review. Very good, very thorough, lots of interesting points. I'm cleaning my house now, and I'm going to listen to your next show on the movies. I'm curious why you didn't include the Rage Carrie 2 or the awful 2002 TV movie Carrie Abomination, but maybe you'll address that in the show. I guess I'll find out. Wanted to tell you that I'm almost finished with my own personal King Marathon. A few years ago, I decided to do everything, whether I've read them before or not. Just pick up Carrie and get started and move my way through. I'm now up to 2013 and Dr. Sleep, really enjoying it. And if my math is correct, I believe I have only four books left and that I can safely say I've read everything King. So with only four books left to go, I was delighted to find your podcast on iTunes and downloaded the first two episodes today. I like your layout. I'm excited to keep listening. I think doing the book and then the movie or the movies of the book and then the next book in chronological order is a great idea. That's all I got for now. After Dr. Sleep, I think Mr. Mercedes is next, so I'm going to go pick that up or order it on, on Amazon or something. Thanks for reading, Brett. Brett, thanks for writing in. Um... And guys, just, you know, if you haven't done so already, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com and share your thoughts on Stephen King. Um, 
and I just can't believe this. I can't believe that. So right now I'm I'm about to read the the review of Everything's Eventual and get into the Dark Tower. And as I'm recording this, I'm I'm currently reading uh, Wind Through the Keyhole, um, a little bit out of order in the chronological order of publication because I was reading Cell. Um, and I'm not weirdest thing. I'm reading I'm reading Cell, and then one day I. I went to go find the book. I can't find it anywhere. A week has gone by. I didn't want to have an entire week of not reading anything because that just kind of gives me anxiety. Uh, and then, so I, I decided to, you know, pick up Wind Through the Keyhole. But seriously, I've turned this house upside down. I can't find Cell anywhere. So we have to go out and buy another copy. But my, my point is, I mean, with Cell, and then we're going to have um, Just After Sunset, and uh, Lisey's story, Duma Key, 112263, Under the Dome, and went through the keyhole. Uh, Dr. Sleep, Mr. Mercedes, Joyland. We're getting close, guys. Um, I'm getting close to the end of, uh, of his, his, his run, um, which is just a crazy, crazy thought. All right, guys, uh, but for now, what I'm going to do, I'm going to uh, get into my review of Everything's Eventual. So, just like I've done with his other short stories, let's start at his introduction. As you know, every decade, King releases a collection of short stories, beginning with 1978's Night Shift. Since then, we have watched him grow as an artist, and our relationship with him has grown as well. By this point in publication, for years we have been his constant reader a term he coined for us decades before. In his first short story collection, he tested the waters by talking to his audience as if he was the crypt keeper or the vault keeper, a type of horror narrator, which is natural as he had been a fan of EC Comics growing up and would later create his own boogeyman storyteller with George Romero when they make the creeper for Creepshow 1 and 2. But Stephen King must have realized that he didn't have to do this. His stories were strong enough to stand on their own. So he got out of their way and let them present themselves. In the meantime, he took off all affectations and simply started talking to us as if we were old friends, which quickly morphed into a friendly and lasting relationship with this author. And when every subsequent publication of short stories, we were able to check into the mindset of Stephen King. In Skeleton Crew, he was honest with us. In Nightmares and Dreamscapes, he shared the power of the short story. And in the introduction to Everything's Eventual, he's just as honest, writing, I mean, come on here, ladies and gentlemen. Whom can I possibly kid at this point? I'm sorry, who can I possibly kid at this late date except maybe myself? I sold my first story when I was 21 and a junior in college. Now I'm 54 and have run a lot of language through the 2.2 pound organic computer word processor I hang my Red Sox, Red Sox cap on. The act of writing stories hasn't been new for me in a long time, but that doesn't mean that it's lost its fascination. And because he knows the relationship he's built with the audience, he addresses the importance of not coasting because as he writes, we're in it together after all. This is a date we're on. We should have fun. We should dance. By this point, King has already published on writing, which he addresses without having to reference it in the opening line of the introduction when he says, I've written more than once about the joy of writing. But even though he's written a philosophical guide on the craft, he still has more to say. What he says is such a profound insight into a prodigious mind that never stops trying to formulate new ways to produce the art. For instance, he discusses his radio stations and how he attempted to craft an Orson Welles-styled radio play in the vein of what he did with War of the Worlds and realized that this was a lost art. Although, although there is a 
very popular podcast right now that I, I've heard a lot about. I haven't read um, Limetown, which is a fake sort of news um, story about a, a missing town. So I don't know if it's a lost art. He then waxes and wanes on Shakespearean tragedy and comedy and tells us, and although folks still go to such Elizabethan extravagances as King Lear and Macbeth, the enjoyment of an art form is light years from the ability to create a new example of that art form. I mean, what a profound and honest statement. With these lost art forms fresh in our mind, he switches gears to the short story and is honest when he is concerned that the short story is closer to being a dead art form than a thriving one. He goes on to examine the success of his e-story, Riding the Bullet, which he tells us is a frustrating experience because it received a lot of attention and press, but all this attention had nothing to do with the story. It's an interesting dilemma and an interesting snapshot of a particular time. In 2002, no one knew the future of electronic books, what that would look like, entail, or what it would do uh, to what we have come to know as physical publications. This was five years before Amazon launched the Kindle, seven years before the Nook, and eight years before the first iPad. Now, downloading a book is as easy as clicking a button, and it's commonplace. I myself has read, I have read many stories and books on my iPad, but that has not taken away my love of wandering through Barnes & Noble, picking up actual books, flipping through them, and smelling them. There's something to be said about the convenience of downloading a good book, but that can never take away from the joy of strolling through an imagination warehouse like the bookstore. So it's funny to read this knowing where we are, with King on the precipice of a new era looking down and focusing on the writing aspect of the ebook, with everyone else just looking at the fact that it's an ebook. Alright guys, I'm going to get into my review now um, of the actual stories that he's talking about. The first of which is Autopsy Room 4. Media. Howard Cottrell awakes from some form of unconsciousness to find himself laid out in an autopsy room. As the doctors begin to prepare, Howard struggles to come to grips with what is happening. After realizing that he is not dead, he deduces that he is in a paralyzed state and struggles to somehow inform the doctors of this fact before they cut into him. While prepping Cottrell's body, the doctor in charge, Katie Arlen, finds shrapnel wounds around his nether regions. While she is absentmindedly examining these, another doctor rushes into the room to inform them that Howard is still alive. Katie looks down to find herself holding Howard's erect penis. In a humorous afternote, Howard explains that he was possibly bitten by a very rare snake, causing the death-like paralysis. Another one of the doctors discovered that same snake in his golf bag and was promptly bitten. It is presumed that he will recover. Howard adds that he and Katie dated for a while but broke up due to an embarrassing problem in the bedroom. He was impotent unless she was wearing rubber gloves. Analysis. Well, it doesn't take long for the reader to figure out what is going on. First, there's the title autopsy room four and through the perspective of the main character we quickly learn that he's about to be operated on now you might be wondering why i chose this particular story i mean it's not like there's much to really dive into there's a paralyzed man in an autopsy room like king says in the notes on the story this is not an original idea but it's one that he wanted to address because there's a universal fear of the helplessness in this situation it's why night terrors are so well terrifying and for those of you who don't know what night terrors are it's a dream state in which the dreamer is rendered completely paralyzed oftentimes with a sensation that something is pressing down on them 
But just because this is a story that we've seen before doesn't mean that King doesn't do it well. Because of his grasp of character, we're able to experience every one of the emotions that run through Howard's mind as he slowly realizes what's happening to him. It's just one horrific reveal after the other after the other. He realizes that he's in a body bag. He can see the attendants mocking him. He can see the tools they're going to use for autopsy. He does everything he can uh, to make a noise to tip them off, but all that comes out is a small sound, too quiet for them to hear. The tone of the story is goofy and fun and tense, and comes with a fun and funny punchline. All in all, I'd say it's a good way to start off the collection. And in terms of Easter eggs, uh, Howard had been golfing in Derry. Derry, Maine, of course, is the setting of Stephen King's 1986 masterpiece, It. It's also been the setting of uh, Insomnia, and we're going to see it again um, when we get to Full Dark No Stars in the short story, Fair Extension. All right, guys, now I'm going to talk about the man in the black suit. So here is the Wikipedia. The man in the black suit recounts the tale of Gary, a nine-year-old boy whose brother has died not long ago due to a bee sting. One day, Gary goes out fishing and falls asleep. When he awakens, he's startled to discover a bee hovering near his face. Since he shares his brother's allergy, he's very scared, but then he hears a clap and the bee dies. Turning around, he discovers a man with burning eyes looming over him, dressed in black, Three, dressed in a black three-piece suit, the man has pale skin and claw-like fingers. When he grins, he exposes horrible, sharp, shark-like teeth. The man, whose body odor smells like burnt matchheads, tells Gary terrible things. That his mother has died while he was away. That his father intends to molest him. That he, the man, intends to eat him. At first, Gary doesn't believe him, but he soon realizes that the man is actually the devil. Throwing the fish he caught at the stranger, he makes his escape. The creature swallows the fish whole and pursues the boy to the outskirts of the forest. At home, Gary finds his father and makes up a lie about what happened when he went fishing, although he does insist that his mother has died. His father denies this, and the boy isn't sure if he believes his father or not until he sees his mother in the kitchen. The things the man said were false, Gary decides. Even so, he's haunted by the incident for the rest of his life. The story is narrated by Gary, looking back from his perspective as an old, terrified man. He is haunted by his belief that he escaped from the devil by sheer luck or his own wits. As the story draws to a close, we learn that he's frightened by the thought of his approaching death. This short story is one of Stephen King's best short stories. There is a simplicity to it that is undeniable, but nevertheless potent. The image of the man in the black suit juxtaposed against the, the lush woods is a very striking image. It's not the environment for a man in the suit, so the image alone is enough to convey an unsettling feeling within the reader. Then, add to the fact that the narrator at the time is just a child, and it becomes even more unsettling. Though the narrator spends a page and a half introducing the story to us, the real introduction comes on page 46 of the text, when King oh-so-wonderfully creates the environment. The town of Mountain was a different world in those days, more different than I could ever tell you. This was a world without airplanes droning overhead, a world almost without cars and trucks, a world where the skies were not cut into lanes and slices by overhead power lines. There was not a single paved road in the whole town, and the business district consisted of nothing but Corson's General Store, Thut's Livery and Hardware, a Methodist church at Christ's Corner, the school, the town hall, and Harry's restaurant half a mile down from there, which my mother called, with unfailing disdain, the liquor house. 
Mostly, though, the difference was in how people lived, how apart they were. I'm not sure people born after the middle of the 20th century could quite credit that, although they might say they could to be polite to old folks like me. There were no phones in western Maine back then, for one thing. The first one wouldn't be installed in another five years, and by the time there was one in our house, I was 19 and going to college at the University of Maine. But that is only the roof of the thing. There was no doctor closer than Casco, and no more than a dozen houses in what you would call town. There were no neighborhoods. I'm not even sure we knew the word, although we had a verb, neighboring, that described church functions and barn dances, and open fields were the exception rather than the rule. Out of town, the houses were farms that stood far apart from each other, and from December until middle March, we mostly hunkered down in the little pockets of stone warmth we called families. We hunkered and listened to the wind in the chimney and hoped no one would get sick or break a leg or get a head full of bad ideas, like the farmer over in Castle Rock who chopped up his wife and kids three winters before and then said in court that the ghosts made him do it. In those days before the Great War, most of Maten was woods and bog, dark long places full of moose and mosquitoes, snakes and secrets. In those days, there were ghosts everywhere. Our main character heads into the woods, and just a few pages in, we meet the titular character, the man in the black suit. A man was standing above me, at the edge of the trees. His face was very long and pale. His black hair was combed tight against his skull, and parted with rigorous care on the left side of his narrow head. He was very tall. He was wearing a black three-piece suit, and I knew right away that he was not a human being, because his eyes were the orangey-red flames in a wood stove. I don't just mean the irises because he had no irises and no pupils and certainly no whites. His eyes were completely orange, an orange that shifted and flickered. And it's really too late not to say exactly what I mean, isn't it? He was on fire inside, and his eyes were like the little icing glass portholes you sometimes see in stove doors. The rest is just wonderful creepiness. Uh, the, the, the man in the black suit, his mellow announcer's voice, his shoes which don't leave tracks, his shadow which wilts the grass, it's all great stuff. And the man in black suit, the man, yeah, I mean, which is gonna, I'm gonna get to that in a second, but the man in the black suit doesn't waste any time nonchalantly telling the narrator that he's gonna eat him. There's a very quick but tense escape. But as we learn now that he's all grown up in a nursing home, you don't really escape. Um, this is just, it's so short. It's a short little tale, but it's so, so good. The strength being just the how well King describes the man in the black suit. So let me get to the Stephen Kingisms here. Uh, the first of which is the laughing, the, the villain laughing like a lunatic. I mean, we've seen this before with many of his characters, one in particular that we've seen time and time again. And the image that we have of the man in a black suit chasing after a child, um, at one point in Needful Things, Brian has a dream that Leland Gaunt is dressed in a black suit and is coming for him. It's very similar to the imagery on display in this short story. And in terms of Easter eggs, we've got Castle Rock, baby. Castle Rock is referenced uh, very early on. And then the man in the black suit says that they are well met when he meets uh, the main character. So when the character says that they are well met, uh, he is using mid-world terminology. 
And number three in terms of Easter eggs, it's not necessarily, uh, it's not, it's not confirmation. I'm not going on record saying this, but I mean, if you want to make the argument that this character is Martin Broadcloak, Walter O'Dim, Walter Paddock, Randall Flagg, then go for it. Uh, because I mean, the similar similarities are just, just, I mean, they're just there. I mean, first of all, he's dressed all in black. Uh, he, he's got a, a pale face, black hair. I mean, there are some things that are different. Um, I mean, for one, just the, the, the glowing eyes, just the, the sheer, I don't know. I mean, I get, you know what? Never mind. This is, I mean, it's clearly Randall Flagg. I mean, it, it just, it really is. I mean, especially because I just finished reading Wind Through the Keyhole. I mean, and the fact that he just kind of spends his, his time just bothering children, you know, just like he does with Tim Stouthart in the pages of Wind Through the Keyhole. It's, it's very similar to to uh, a depiction of Randall Flagg that, that King has kind of picked up on in, in, in the last couple years. So I would say, I would say that that's Randall Flagg. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just honestly think that, that he is a, a very, very bored Randall Flagg just, just messing uh, with this kid. I mean, he, he's good humored. He cackles to himself. Like I said, he dresses all in black. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't think that, I mean, if it's the devil, then it's not Randall Flagg, but you know, maybe it's just one of his, of King's devilish characters pretending to be the devil. So yeah, I mean, the thing is, if this took place in Derry, I would say that it's not Randall Flagg. I would say it's an incarnation of Pennywise, the dancing clown, because the, the actions here are very similar to, to Pennywise. All right, now I want to talk about the road virus heads north. Uh, the story follows a successful horror writer named Richard Kinnell as he drives back from Boston to his home in Derry, Maine. Along the way, he comes across a yard sale where he notices and is captivated by a bizarre painting of a sinister-looking man with filed teeth driving his car on Boston's Tobin Bridge. The painting, which is apparently titled The Road Virus Heads North, was painted by a tortured genius who had burned all of his other paintings prior to killing himself, leaving a cryptic note that he couldn't stand what was happening to him. Kinnell, a collector of such oddities, has no hesitation in buying the painting from the woman running the sale. As Kinnell travels north, he stops at his aunt's house to show her the painting and notices that some of the details in the painting have changed. At first, he dismisses this by assuming he hasn't examined it closely, but soon realizes that the painting is continuing to change. Deeply unsettled by this fact, he discards the painting at a rest stop. When he arrives at his home, he finds to his horror that the painting has somehow followed him and hangs from his wall. It has changed again, this time depicting a bloody aftermath at the yard sale where he had purchased it. He hears on the news that the woman running the sale, the yard sale, was brutally murdered. He realizes that the man, the painting, somehow really exists, and the ever-changing painting shows him getting closer and closer to his home. Cannell lights a fire in the fireplace and tosses in the painting. Confident that this will destroy it once and for all, he decides to take a shower, where he passes out and has a nightmare about the various things he's encountered that day. When he awakens, he realizes that the artist who created the road virus burned all of his paintings, including this one, which means that the painting survived his attempt to burn it, and the man the painting has survived and is walking through the house. Cannell tries to escape, but ultimately fails, and the painting gets him as well. The book's final passage describes Cannell seeing the latest change to the painting, with fresh blood on the driver's seat of the car, and realizes that the painting is showing what is about to happen to him. When Richard Cannell finds the road virus, King is able to slip in some commentary on his role as a horror writer. He hadn't been attracted to the painting because he was attracted to this painting. 
He wrote horror stories because he was attracted to things like this painting. The backstory of the painting is wonderfully creepy and mysterious, the painter having committed suicide because he doesn't know what's happening to him. When he gets to his aunt house, we witness her reaction to the painting, and when Richard looks at it again, we see that it's changed. Later, the painting reveals the road virus heading along a stretch of road to the uh, Rosewood where he had purchased the painting, and King touches upon his writing on page 299 when he writes... Strength suddenly ran out of his body, ran out like water from a bucket with a hole on the bottom, and he sat down heavily on the curb separating the parking lot from the dog walking zone. He suddenly understood that this was truth he'd missed in all of his fiction. This was how people really reacted when they came face to face with something which made no rational sense. You felt as if you were bleeding to death, only inside your head. What works so well about this story is the urgency that immediately hits the character when he looks into the painting. Judy understands that something is dreadfully wrong with it, and rightfully so. After having thrown it from his car, Richard finds it hanging on his wall when he returns home. And when the road virus comes, it comes quick, and King suggests that the character is going to suffer a fate worse than death, that he'll have to go for a ride with the driver. So Stephen Kingisms, uh, the dangerous car. Clearly we have seen uh, dangerous cars before in his works. Number two is paintings that move. Uh, this is just like Rose Matter, which King mentions in the introduction here and calls it the best of all of his books, the best read of all of his books, which I, I don't agree with. Number three is the writer. Richard Cannell is from a long line of author characters. And in terms of Easter eggs, we have Derry. Derry, as I've already said, um, is the setting of uh, it. Up next is lunch at the Gotham Cafe. A man named Steve Davis comes home one day to find a letter from his wife, Diane, coldly stating that she has left him and intends to get a divorce. He finds himself baffled as to what led her to do this, and over time, he becomes increasingly depressed. Diane's departure prompts him to give up cigarettes, and he begins to suffer nicotine withdrawal. Diane's lawyer, William Humboldt, calls Steve with plans to meet with the two of them for lunch. He decides on the Gotham Cafe and sets a date. Steve's lawyer is unable to attend due to a family crisis. Despite his lawyer's warning, however, Steve is determined to keep the date and see Diane again. Before entering the cafe, Steve impulsively buys an umbrella. Upon entering, he finds that the maitre d', eventually revealed to be named Guy, or Guy, is talking senselessly about a dog, which Steve takes to be the waiter slang for his new umbrella. When Steve attempts to seek rec reconciliation with Diane, things begin to fall apart. Much to Steve's consternation, she regards him with a mixture of apprehension and contempt and spurns his request for explanation. The maitre d' then makes a surprise reappearance, homicidally insane, screaming, eee! and ranting in word salad, and stabs Humboldt through the mouth with a chef's knife, cutting through his cheek and earlobe. A single drop of blood falls into a water glass, inspiring the cover of everything's eventual the book in which it is collected. Guy then kills the, or Guy, then kills the lawyer and continues to go berserk and other patrons flee the restaurant. Steve briefly fends off the lunatic with his umbrella, then drags the helplessly terrified Diane into the kitchen. Guy gives chase, and after giving the cafe's cook a grisly injury, proceeds onward. Desperately struggling to hold off the lunatic, Steve implores Diane to unbolt the rear entrance door so they can escape, but she remains in a state of shock 
He is able to incapacitate Guy by dousing him with scalding water and hitting him with a metal frying pan. After finally escaping from both the cafe and Guy, Steve attempts to make sure that Diane is alright. Diane recoils from his touch and rants at him venomously. Devoid of any shred of gratitude for his protection, she has instead construed the events of the last few minutes to reaffirm her perception of Steve as a despicable, bullying control freak and decides it is time to stand up to him. When he tries to point out that he just saved her life, she flatly denies that he did. Overwhelmed with incredulous fury, Steve loses interest in reconciliation. Diane's harangue is interrupted by Steve slapping her across the face in disbelief. This only serves to further reinforce her embittered vilification of her husband, and after attempting to wound him with spurious claims of extramarital lovers, she leaves him for good. As Steve sits on the curb and watches ambulances haul away both the victims and a heavenly restrained Guy, he is left wondering about Guy's private life and the nature of insanity. He imagines Guy living in a similar situation as his own, driven insane by the irrationality of his wife whom he may have murdered before coming to work this day, and a constant barking of the neighbor's dog. And under his breath, he starts to say, "Ee!" King's entry in this gleefully malicious story is presented through the perspective of Stephen Davis, who finds out that his wife is divorcing him. As he goes about the divorce process, King teases the events of the Gotham Cafe, and by the time he dwells on the fact that if his own lawyer had been there, he would have been murdered too. The reader can't wait for the lunch date. As soon as he arrives at the Gotham Cafe, the maitre d' is clearly insane, yelling about a non-existent dog, and Steve even sure before that that something was wrong with him. It doesn't take long for the lunatic to absolutely lose it, attacking first Diane's lawyer and then proceeding to chase Diane and Steve through the restaurant. In the introduction to the piece, King states that he was inspired when the maitre d' winked at him after a real-life couple were arguing in the restaurant and was had stuck with him. This argumentative duo comes out here, and it's frighteningly comedic. It becomes a life-or-death screwball comedy with the two of them bickering at each other while they're almost killed by an enraged maitre d'. And in the end, after all of it, all of the rage that had built up within Steve starts to manifest when he starts to try out that word, eee, which had been the maitre d's expression of insanity. So, Stephen King-isms. Very soon, we will encounter another character screaming, eee, the same way that the maitre d' does. Okay, guys, I'm going to get into 1408. So 1408. The protagonist is writer Mike Enslin, who writes nonfiction works based on the theme of haunted places. His book series, Ten Nights in a Haunted Houses, Ten Nights in Ten Haunted Graveyards, and Ten Nights in Ten Haunted Castles, prove to be bestsellers. But Enslin internally reveals some guilt and regret at their success, privately acknowledging that he is a believer in neither the paranormal nor the supernatural elements he espouses in these books. Nevertheless, he arrives at the Hotel Dolphin on 61st Street in New York City, intent on spending the night in the hotel's infamous room 1408 as part of his research for his tech books, Ten Nights in Ten Haunted Hotel Rooms. At first, Enslin is unfazed by 1408's morbid history. According to the hotel's manager, Mr. Olin, who has purposefully left it vacant for over 20 years, room 1408 has been responsible for at least 42 deaths, 12 of them suicides, and at least 30 natural deaths all over a span of 68 years. While remarking that he doesn't believe that there are ghosts in 1408, 
Olin insists that there is something that resides inside, something that causes terrible things to happen to people who stay within its walls for anything but the briefest periods of time, something that affects various electronic devices, causing digital wristwatches, pocket calculators, and cell phones to stop functioning or to operate unpredictability, unpredictably. Mr. Olin also reveals that due to the superstitious practice of never recognizing the 13th floor, the room is listed on the 14th, it is a room cursed by existing on the 13th floor, the room numbers themselves adding up to 13, making it all the worse. Mr. Olin pleads with Mr. Enslin to consider, believing that a skeptic such as he is even more susceptible to the room's curse. Enslin is shaking, but his determination to follow through with his research and not to appear frightened before Mr. Olin wins out. Olin reluctantly leads him to the 14th floor, unwilling to accompany him any further than the elevator. Enslin's problems with room 1408 begin before he even sets foot through the door. In fact, the door itself initially appears to be crooked to the left. He looks again, and the door appears to be straight. Then he looks again, and it appears to be crooked, now to the right. As Enslin enters and examines the room, he begins dictating into his handheld tape recorder. His train of thought immediately takes unwelcome and chaotic turns. He compares it to being stoned on bad, cheap dope. He begins experiencing what may or may not be hallucinations. The breakfast menu on the nightstand changes languages. First it's French, then Russian, then Italian. After that, it simply turns into a picture of a wolf eating the leg of a screaming little boy. Then the picture then shifts to the menu again, this time in English. When this ends, Enslin sees that the picture on the walls have shifted into frightening visions. A still life of an orange becomes Enslin's severed head. Enslin sees pictures disappearing and reappearing. Enslin's feet sink into the carpet like quicksand, paintings come alive, etc. And Enslin's thoughts become bizarre and incoherent. He tries to make a phone call, but only hears a nightmarish voice on the end of the line chanting bizarre phrases. For example, this is nine, 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 this is ten, ten, we have killed your friends, every friend is now dead, this is six, six. Enslin sets his old lucky Hawaiian shirt on fire while still wearing it, which breaks the spell of the room long enough for him to escape. As he collapses, on fire, outside the room, another hotel guest, who was getting ice from the ice machine, sees him and is able to put out the flames. The other guest looks inside the room, and something about it is tempting him to enter, but Enslin warns him not to. When he mentions that the room is haunted, the door to 1408 slams shut. In the aftermath, Enslin gives up writing. He has various problems stemming from his night in the room. These include sleeping with the lights on so I always know where I am when I wake up from the bad dreams, removing the house's phones, and closing the curtains at sunset because he cannot stay, stand the shade of yellow-orange that reminds him of 1408 before he saved himself. Analysis. This is a tricky one for King because, after all, he had written already a famous story that took place within a haunted hotel. Now, I understand that he's riffing on the haunted room, which many inns and hotels allegedly have throughout the world, but it's still close enough where I could understand if people tuned out because he's been there, done that. But he hasn't. That's the thing. Not really. This is a mind trip. 1408 is a boatload of fun, a surreal look at one particular hotel room. We might think that he's covered this ground with The Shining, but have any of us served as caretakers to an empty hotel? No. But we've all stayed in a hotel before. 
And this particular story makes the evil hotel, or in this case, the evil room, more accessible to the readers. And King sets up our players right away. Mike Enslin, the Hawaiian shirt-wearing supernatural writer, and Mr. Olin, the hotel manager wary of letting him stay in 1408. We learn the thrust of the story's premise. Mike Eslin is an anthology author of haunted locations who doesn't believe in the haunted locations he travels to. And then Mr. Olin gives his warning, which makes Mike want us to check into 1408 all the much more. There are no ghosts in room 1408, and there never have been. There's something in there. I've felt it myself, but it's not a spirit presence. It's an abandoned house. In an abandoned house or an old castle keep, your unbelief may serve you as protection. In room 1408, it will only render you more vulnerable. Don't do it, Mr. Enslin. That's why I waited for you tonight, to ask you, to beg you, not to do it. Of all the people on earth who don't belong in that room, a man who wrote those cheerful, exploitative true ghost books leads the list. Olin starts giving us the goods and we can't wait for Mike to check in. He rattles off a list of how you can't tell time in 1408, how beepers, wristwatches, cell phones don't work, and lists off the things that had occurred to the hotel maids while in that room, spontaneous weeping, laughing, and blindness. Once Enslin enters the room, King keeps us hooked. The most interesting artifact left in the wake of Michael Enslin's brief stay, it lasted about 70 minutes, in room 1408 was the 11 minutes of recorded tape in his mini-quarter, which was charred a bit but not even close to destroyed. The fascinating thing about the narration was how little narration there was, and how odd it became. As for the narration, King shows us the strangeness of the room through descriptions of the narration on tape, how fragmented and mumbly it is. Everything immediately goes to hell. He's disoriented, we're disoriented, he seems drugged, there's a surreal pervasive wrongness that infuses the narrative. By the time the room starts to change, we're already messed up, and though Enslin survives, he never really escapes from the room, as he's bumped up against something completely inhuman that he'll never be able to understand. All in all, it's an incredibly well-written story. King weaves in Mike's perspective with the third-person narrator to create a strange blend of perspective that keeps the readers on edge the entire time. This one is great, and as I'm recording this, it is um, mid-October. This is a great story to read around Halloween. You know, I mean, uh, Mr. Olin, I mean, the way that he just builds up this room, it's just, it's something out of a, something out of a, just a spooky tale, and it's short, and it's it's more experimental than King uh, than your typical King book, and it's just everything about it is just it, I'm absolutely bananas for. I love it. All right, guys, uh, which brings us to our Stephen King isms. First of which is the haunted hotel, the haunted hotel, of course, seen before in The Shining, and teeth filed to a sharp point. The woman in the picture has cannibal teeth, which is an image that we have seen over and over again in King's works. Okay, everyone, that's all I'm going to do for the the stories in Everything's Eventual. I know, I know, I'm not including uh, um, writing the bullet. I know, I'm sorry. You know, it's one of those ones that I might go back to at a later date. But for right now, we're approaching about 40 minutes or so of review of the, the works within 
this particular short story right now, and then I also have another episode dedicated solely to Little Sisters of Illuria and Everything's Eventual itself. So all in all, we'll have about an hour of review for, for this week. So there's more to come. Um, just head on over to that that episode that has everything to do with, with the Dark Tower. So guys, next week, next week, next week, next week is a big one. When I sat down, um, in the spring of 2014 and, or 2015 and what the hell year is it guys? Is it 16? No, we're in 2015, right? Okay. So when I sat down in, uh, the spring of 2014, I was thinking about doing a Stephen King podcast. I thought about the, the highs of, of, of such a endeavor and really, like I said, contextualizing the, the works of Stephen King around the Dark Tower and it and rereading it, um, th- those were some big ones. And then, even though I just mentioned the Dark Tower, it's related, but it's different. Going back and revisiting the last three Dark Tower books, Wolves of the Kala, Song of Susanna, and the Dark Tower, that was something that I was really looking forward to doing because my initial readings of those were just marred by disappointment. And I wanted to go back without that emotional piece getting in the way of what King was doing. So the reason that I'm saying all this is because next week I begin that journey and we're going to be taking our final steps that will take us to the Dark Tower itself, beginning with my review of Wolves of the Kala. So Dark Tower fans, rejoice or lament, because we are coming to the end one more time. And for those of you who are not Dark Tower fans, I'm sorry guys, but for the next uh, three episodes or so, you're going to be kind of out of luck. But you always have... uh, All of the reviews that I have done before this, and if you want to go back, I... I encourage you, read the Dark Tower books. Read them because they are worth reading. So read them and then catch up with all of us and check out my reviews here at Stephen King Cast. So, may you have long days and pleasant nights. And I will see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King Cast. Oh, I'd love to wear a rainbow every day And tell the world that everything's okay But I'll try to carry off a little darkness on my back Till things are brighter, I'm the man in black